Welcome to Science and Pictures Presents Science in Podcast, the podcast where we read cool papers and talk about them uh, so you don't have to. We do the work for you and you can just enjoy listening. Uh, my host, as always, for the forever now, uh, well, I mean, until one of us dies, is uh, Madison. Well, I did not realize this was a forever contract. <laughs> it is. Um, I didn't actually write it up. I sort of just made you send me your signature over the phone picture, but... You know, you're, right. uh, mm-hmm, or is love. Well, eternally yours. My name is Madison Dix. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am now a co-host on this podcast. Uh, so I'm very excited to be here uh, on Science and Podcast. And uh, like we did last time, we actually have a theme for you yes. today. Mm-hmm. What's the our theme, theme is? Well, I struggled with this because there's a lot of like different definitions of what you can say. So I'm just going to narrow it. I'm going to narrow it. I'm going to make it very broad. We're talking about toxins. Toxins. Yes. Mm-hmm. Toxic masculinity. Toxic exes. <laughs> toxic people in your life. No, no. I wouldn't literal. be surprised if they actually had papers on that, though. <laughs> they might. Maybe we'll do that again. Maybe toxins will come back. Maybe around Valentine's Day. We'll see. <laughs> Just keep our options open. No. Biological um, toxins. <laughs> arguably much more interesting. Uh, which one of us is going to go first? Well, actually, I made you go first last time, so I suppose it's my turn to bite the bullet, huh? Okay, I have a quick story for you first, though. Okay. Uh, First, um, well, I learned, and this is actually kind of interesting, did you know that uh, human beings have 25 different genes uh, to detect bitter tastes? Wow. All that Mm -hmm. for bitterness. Indeed. And those (laughs) genes have different alleles or flavors. Uh, You know, uh, each different people have different versions of those genes active. And so there's been a lot of studies on this. You can actually, each individual person has like their unique profile of which genes of those are active. Oh, And I found that out, indeed. And I found that out because I had the worst cupcake of my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... um, you know how uh, a lot of companies use like different like food colorings that aren't supposed to taste like anything? Ugh, yeah. Well, if you have the wrong flavor profile because they didn't think to test this when they made the food colorings all those years ago, um, you can have like an overwhelming feeling of spit this out or you're going to die. And that happened to me because I just oh kind of put God. the whole cupcake in my mouth if it can fit. Um, and yeah, I thought my mom was playing a prank on me, but I looked over and she was as confused as I was. Oh my goodness. Okay, what else was <laughs> like, was it chocolate? What Was there anything else nefarious? No, it was like regular cupcake, regular frosting, but it was pink. And the only thing, like, it triggered a, a few memories of this happening before. So, yeah, I'm huh. very sensitive to this different type of food coloring that I can't even identify because it, the cupcake is in the trash. He don't like the pink. I don't like the pink. Hmm, interesting. That is super yeah. interesting. I think about that a lot because I'm a person who really, really likes bitter flavors. You do? Like, yeah, I love, like, black coffee, dark chocolate, like all of that kind of stuff. And I know so many people who are like, why do you hate yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Because to them, those things are disgusting, but I love them. So I wonder. I will, (laughs) I will agree with you to an extent on the black, uh, uh, sorry, the uh, dark chocolate, but I can't like go into like the 40% cacao range. That just doesn't do it. It's just my head goes. Really? 40? That's your, that's your cutoff? I think. Oh, girl. I'll have to double check this, and then we'll get back to you next week. But uh, my we'll pref- my preferred is seventy percent dark. You but are a sociopath. I <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I like dark chocolate. If that makes me a sociopath, then so be it. It's the combination with the black coffee, but yes. Yes, you know, actually, I like that fun fact. And since we're just creating this podcast um you know other podcasts have fun little corners and i feel like it'd be a fun little icebreaker for this podcast what if uh, before we launched into the thematic it's like what's a fun fact science somewhat science related you learned this week that would be yours okay cool because that's cute. Um, yeah is there anything that you learned about our topic this week that isn't your paper um oof. I learned that if you tell your friends that you like 70% dark chocolate, they'll call you a sociopath. <laughs> no. Um, did I learn anything scientific this week? Um, see, now I suggested the corner, but I don't know what I want to put in the corner. Not baby. Um, never never, put never baby. But yeah, I guess I'll have to come back to you uh, next week with a corner. 
with a corner corner because I've <laughs> I've learned nothing. <laughs> I can only think of things that are in the articles I'm going to share with you. You know what's fun? We're 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 just starting out. I can't follow you, uh, but next week I will. So be prepared. All right, that sounds good. That sounds good. All right, cool. <laughs> fantastic. Well, um, I'll give you. I guess I just gave a fun fact about me this week instead, which is that I like better things. So fun fact: I learned nothing. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that uh, that uh, meme of Michael Scott. I understand nothing. <laughs> um, there were sections of my articles this week, by the way, that I had to do so much googling to get through the jargon, because um, as you know, toxins you get into molecular structure. Yeah. And, oh, buddy. Oh, I do not understand it. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those things that like when I was going through like the possible jobs in my biology major, I took one look at like the toxins and the chemistry involved and just took a complete 180. So yeah. I feel yeah. Like yeah. But I did, a, I did manage to uh, synthesize a pretty interesting story for you. Hey, there you go. So um, I guess I should tell you the title of the article that I'm covering this week. <laughs> sure. um, unlike most scientific articles, this one actually does have a pretty, pretty on the nose title. It's, it's not full of jargon and it's not too long. So actually I'm pretty happy with it. Okay. Um, it is called specialized insulin is used for chemical warfare by fish hunting cone snails. Whoa. Yeah. I knew you were going to like this one. Cause you're, I mean, you stand cold snails. Oh my god, best snail. Best snail yep. 2K21 and forever. Yep. It's a really good snail. Um and this <laughs> <laughs> you will find out why. So this article is from PNAS. Um you know, uh -huh. the proceedings yep. of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America that is not at all a funny acronym. Um <laughs> good old PNAS. <laughs> good old PNAS and <laughs> love them. I mean this I actually this is where I find most of the scientific articles that I find for free. So pnas.org. Wait, do you not know about Sci-Hub? I know about Sci-Hub, but like often I just go straight into PNAS and just type in what I'm looking for. Um, Cause I know that everything on PNAS is going to be free, which Sci-Hub sometimes uh, gives you paid options. Do they? Are we talking about the same Sci-Hub? Maybe not. Mine's the illegal one where you type. Oh, I'm, I'm thinking of Science Direct. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, Mine's the illegal one where you so you type in any article that you could possibly want access to, and they find you like a slightly older copy that still says exactly what the original article does. They're based in like Russia. So like no one's ever been able to take them down, but I use it for almost everything. Oh, wow. That's cool. And should you be mentioning it on your podcast? <laughs> well, you know, I've actually done a lot of thinking about this and the publishing industry for scientific papers is completely predatory and doesn't actually benefit scientists at all. So That's if true. a bunch of publications are going to get mad at me for you know, accessing an article that they don't actually pay the scientists who made the articles to look at, then I'm not really going to feel bad about it. You heard it here first, folks. We are not hurting scientists with this. <laughs> um, we are we are fans of scientists. We are not scientists. So they don't need to respect us and they can't hurt us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. I'm with it. Also, everything okay. I said ha uh, has quotes around it. So, you know, you can't. I'm, I'm fifth amending. Uh, yeah, yeah, same. Mm -hmm. fifth, fifth Amendment, same. Me too. I have to read up on what that is. <laughs> I'd like to. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it's called SciHub. Yes. Send they me changed. The link. Yeah, no, they, they have show notes. <laughs> oh, I. <laughs> I don't know if I want to go that far. I know. Um, they do have to have to change their URL every once in a while, but if you know where to find it, it's uh, pretty good. So yeah, All if right. you want to read papers and not pay for them, uh, SciHub. Maybe Sci sponsor us. That'd be really cool. <laughs> um, I don't know how they make money, though. I don't think they make money. I think they're just out for the, um, the what is it called when you give it to more people? Open access? Of the thing. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> It's always my hope oh. that like there's like some rich people out there that just want to like use their money to uh, help people learn things, and that's what I imagine is happening in Russia with SciHub. I really hope so. Um, whoever made SciHub, if you're listening to this, which I know you aren't, get in touch. <laughs> we love you. We'd love to interview you in like a deep throat voice. 
you know. <laughs> okay. Anyway. That'll be your responsibility, by the way. Okay, cool. I would love to. Um, <laughs> so, once again, our topic this week <laughs> is actually not Sci-Hub. It's toxins. And I am here to tell you about this crazy fish hunting snail um, that uses some toxins that you might not expect and even some that you might not consider a toxin. Um, pretty cool stuff. So a little background on cone snails, Jared. I know you know this stuff, but not everybody is a cone head. I'm literally <laughs> like I... grinning ear to ear right now. Yeah, um, not everyone knows. So just a brief overview of the cone snails. Um, they are mollusks. They are in the class gastropoda, which means stomach foot. They have one. Um, the order, (laughs) (laughs) thank you. The order Serbio Concha. Also, I am not responsible for any mispronunciations of these words. I'd like to think that's Serbio Conca. Serbio Conca. Okay. Yeah. So like the conch type ish family related and the family Conidae, which is, you know, cone snails. So mm-hmm. Conidae conus, um, that's the ge- the family and the genus. And then there are, depending on who you ask, between 500 and 900 species in the genus conus. Do you think like one is a prediction of how many we have left to discover and one's like how many we actually know of? It either could be that. It could also be, you know, discrepancy in the scientific community about species differentiation. Like this one doesn't have as many spots and it lives in a different area. We think it's a different species. The other guy's like, oh. no, it's not different enough. You know what I mean? Okay, fair enough. That happens. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, and a, they do it. Ex- that's exactly how it happens. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a look behind the curtain here. But actually, there is there is always some discussion about whether or not something is different enough to qualify as a new species. Um, and often egos do get in the way of that discussion. Yeah, exactly. Everyone wants to discover a new species. And mm-hmm. everyone else doesn't want everyone else to succeed. I don't know. So You're actually kind of foreshadowed in my paper, so very... Oh, uh, good. <laughs> There's some turf going on. Um, yeah, so <laughs> 500 to 900 species in the Conus genus... They are all carnivorous, meat-eating. Um, they are all venomous. Um, and about 100 of them are very effective predators of fish. So real quick, what do you mean when you say venomous as opposed to some other words? Oh, cute. We're going to do this? Okay. Yeah, we might so, as well. We might as well. You're right. Okay, so we use the umbrella term toxins today because um, a lot of people use the word venom or the word poison to kind of describe all toxins. But there is in some languages, they're actually the same word, which makes it even yeah. more confusing, too. Yes, but in English, we have a distinction. Um, for So for those of you who'd like to know, a venom is something that has to be injected in order to be toxic. And a poison has to be ingested. You have to eat it or absorb it somehow. Um, so, for example, like a snake, a viper that bites you to inject poison, that's a venomous snake. But a puffer fish, who, if you eat it, that's poisonous to you. That is poison. Um, so the, the cone snail would not be poisonous if you ate it, but it is venomous. It uses toxins to hunt its prey and to defend itself. Cool. There you go. So yes, it is a venomous genre of snails. Um, they all mostly live in the Indo-West Pacific region, um, all in warm seas. Um, and they have some pretty pretty cool tricks up their sleeves. Um, So some snail biology for you. Um, Snails have an organ called a siphon. Um, You can think of it kind of as their nose. That's what they use to find prey, chemoreception, and um, for respiration, breathing, in other words. I'm I'm sure a lot of people have like seen like in in, like a tide pool in an aquarium or even like in outside in the wild, just like one like whelk or something kind of pushing its one little siphon forward to sniff. Yeah, it's the one that looks like a little snorkel. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So there's that. That's like the nose. So the siphon is like the nose. And then there is the proboscis. And that's the mouth, essentially. So a proboscis is like a long, tubular, muscular elongation of a mouth. um, And it's used for hunting. And um, cone snails inside of the proboscis have harpoons little venomous spikes that contain toxins called conotoxins. And yes, the 
category of toxins that these snails use is named after them. They're the only ones who have it. Um, and conotoxins are really complex blends of different types of neurotoxins. So a neurotoxin is a type of toxin that affects the nervous system. So that's like your neurons in your brain and your nerves in your fingers that make you feel things. Um, and they can be really bad because they affect your brain. Um, mm -hmm. So cone snails create these conotoxins um, in what's, uh, what is a venom duct. Um, and then it's secreted into um, the lumen of the venom duct. And the venom duct is attached to a venom bulb. And the venom bulb is muscular, and when it, it's contracted, it pushes venom into the harpoon and pushes the harpoon out of the proboscis. I never actually Ooh. looked that far into the mechanism. It's literally... Yeah! <laughs> I'm sorry, that's that's really cool. Isn't it? Um, so, they are loading... A... Yeah, I'm sorry, I keep going. Yeah, no. Um, I'm glad that you followed that, because I felt like I could have explained it a little better. But yeah, it's pretty that cool. Makes sense. Yeah, they, they basically load the harpoons with the toxin and then squeeze the little bulb to shoot them. Um, so, like, imagine, like, a person who, like, is about to load a crossbow, but first he takes his bolt, which has, like, a... It's hollow, and he <laughs> takes a turkey baster, and he squeezes some poison into it. <laughs> yes. That's essentially what's happening here. That is a really good description. Thank you very much for that. Okay, yeah. Cool. So that's what's happening. Um, now, not all cone snails will fire these harpoons to subdue their prey. Some types of cone snails are what they call net hunters. So the ones who actually catch their prey with the harpoons, those are hook and line hunters. Pretty mm -hmm. self-explanatory. But the net hunters have a section of their foot that is really big, like a net, and it's big enough that they can actually capture several fish in this net. And once several. The, several. And once the, yeah, and once the fish are in the net, then they will be um, injected with the harpoon of venom, which subdues them. So that's a much harder way to fish. It's kind of like casting your net out and then spearing the fish inside of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's a it's, little bit overkill, but snails gotta eat. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, and I was trying to figure out how that evolved because it just seems like it would be less effective to me than the hook and line. And I didn't find any information about how it evolved, but this article did give us a lot of information about what else they've evolved in order to make it effective. Um, mm -hmm. So here's what's crazy. The snails that hunt fish and do it with this net have evolved something, and this is one of the most fun names I've ever found in a scientific article. Um, they evolve a cocktail of uh, toxins that they can eject just into the water, so not through the harpoon, just squirt it open into the water, and they call that a Nirvana Cabal. <laughs> yeah. Nirvana Cabal, because yeah. that's the last thing they'll ever feel before they get stabbed by the venomous harpoon. Yeah, so a Cabal is like, um, it's a military term, and it's sort of like, actually, you know what, I should look up the term, I could just to make sure I have it right, because I might not. Cabal. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's like a political overthrow. Mm -hmm. um, and the cabals of these snails usually contain a ton of potent neurotoxins. So they assault the nerves of these fish. Um, when scientists have observed it, they don't, you don't see the toxins being released into the water, but you see a section of a school of fish just suddenly start moving really slowly or start twitching or be, or be otherwise incapacitated, which is why they know that they do this. Um, so that's how... Say Sorry, so, so, um, no, 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 keep going. No, what were you going to ask? I was going to, uh, did it mention how far away the fish could be before it didn't have an effect on them? No, it didn't. And I wish okay. it did. Um, this, that's not the focus of this article, I guess, but it is a question that I also want to know the answer to. I'd be um, curious to see. Well, I guess they would have a hard time figuring that out because it's hard to, to recreate like a massive space like the ocean in a laboratory, but yeah, curious. Yeah. Um, so these neurotoxic cabals, these nirvana cabals can have hundreds of different types of toxins in them. Um, and they're very potent, very diverse. Um, and these toxins 
target specific receptors and ion channel subtypes located in the nervous system, which is basically how your nervous system communicates. Um, I could list all of the receptors that are impacted by these venoms, but I don't know what any of them mean. Shall I do it? Will they mean anything to you? Um, no, but let's just hear a few. Nicotonic, androgenic, NMDA, serotonogenic. So, you know. A couple of those just on the, maybe serotonin is one and then an androgen. Okay, yeah, I don't androgens, know serotonin, <laughs> nicotine. Like those are my guesses, but I didn't actually look it up. However, I mean, those aren't bad guesses because um, here's here's something interesting I learned this week. Um, <laughs> you have probably put several neurotoxins in your body. Have I? On purpose. Because guess what? Alcohol is a neurotoxin. Did you know? Oh. Isn't that interesting? No, I didn't know that. That's yeah. okay. Alcohol is technically a neurotoxin. Um, so are many of the... Uh, many drugs, cocaine, heroin, I'm not accusing you of doing those. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, there's a lot of substances that we interact with on a pretty daily basis that are actually considered neurotoxic. It's just that we do it in small amounts. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So you can probably guess what some other neurotoxins are just based on, um, so the symptoms of interacting with a neurotoxin um, can vary. Some of them are imbalance, loss of circulation, depression, sexual dysfunction, behavioral problems, uncontrollable obsessive and or compulsive behavior, loss of memory and cognitive function, vision loss, headache, altered sensation, ting tingling or numbness in the limbs, up to paralysis. So so what you're saying is these things can happen if you're stung by a snail. Well, all of those things can happen if you're stung by a snail, yes. Although, um, <laughs> <laughs> mostly with cone snails, what happens to people is respiratory arrest. Okay, gotcha. So that's rough. However, in the last 90 years, only 36 people have actually died from interactions with cone snails. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they have super potent venoms, but they are small, we are large, um, and they're not going to try to harpoon you unless you're threatening them in a very specific way where that's they feel that that's their only option, I guess, probably. Yeah. I yeah. would imagine that places that have a lot of cone snails would probably do a lot to educate their public, like, hey, don't pick these up because Yeah, they do. You know, don't 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 do it. Yeah, they do they have to actually, because the other thing about these snails is that their shells are gorgeous. Um actually the particular snail that was studied, there was one species they focused on for this study, because of the cool thing it does, it'll get to in a second, I promise. Um <laughs> it's called the geographer's cone snail. <gasps> I love the ge okay, yeah. Cone yeah. geographics. Exactly, Conus Geographicus. Um, it has a really beautiful shell that looks kind of like a map. Yeah, it's so pretty. <laughs> I would imagine some aspiring pirate back in the day picking one of those up and thinking they figured it out, and then they would just feel so good as their lungs started to, oh God. Yeah, so they're really pretty. So I imagine, yeah, they have to tell people not to pick them up because <laughs> I would if I saw one and I didn't know, but apparently that works well because 36 deaths in the last 90 years, that is not many. Not bad. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we've talked about neurotoxins a bit and what they are. The fact that cone snails are famous for making them, both in the harpoons they use to catch fish and also in the Nirvana Cabal or chemical warfare that they engage in to stun fish before they capture them with their net-like foot. Um, however... Something you might not know about these neurotoxins is that there's been a lot of interest recently in using them to create new medicines, venom-based right, pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I said you might not know this. I know that you know this, Jared, because <laughs> <laughs> this is something we talk about a lot. But um, It's still really cool, though. It is cool, and other people might not know that a lot of med medicines and pharmaceuticals are actually either inspired or derived from venoms and other toxins mm -hmm. we find in nature. So the venom itself in cone snails is really potent, it's really fast, and it's really specific. And those are all the ingredients you look for when you are making a pharmaceutical. Um, there's peptides and proteins. They're very specific for hit hitting certain targets in the physiological system. Um, and so 
that can help target really specific ailments in humans. And neurotoxic venoms are especially interesting because um, so much of our bodily function is controlled by these pathways, by our neurons firing, by our brain, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, Ooh, uh, one constant question that's just really, really cool. Yeah. Um, so there are, you mentioned there are fish eating cone snails, right? Yes. Um, why are the fish eating ones so much more dangerous to humans than say like a worm eating snail? Is there anything about our nervous systems that might be <laughs> similar? What a leading question. Um, <laughs> yes. So the ones that are most studied are the fish eating cone snails because their venoms act specifically on the systems of vertebrates like you and me, creatures with a backbone. Yeah. Uh, cone snails, yeah, cone snails are invertebrates or mollusks, no backbone, no spine, um, and their body chemistry and brain type thing chemistry <laughs> um, works really differently than ours. Um, so for cone snails that use venom to hunt other snails or worms, for example, that's really specific venom cocktail that they've created to take down a, a worm is not going to do anything to a human nervous system. But we actually evolved from fishy ancestors. So a lot of the things that can affect fish can absolutely affect humans. So there you go. Everyone's a fish. Yeah, we are all fish. We'll do an episode on that at some time as well, at some point. (laughs) Um, Every single subject. Heck yeah. Okay. So anyway, they make really good drugs because they can be very specific for very specific targets. Um, and there actually is already a painkiller that they've derived from cone snail venom. It's called ziconotide, um, and it treats chronic pain, chronic pain. (laughs) That is just Um, such an amazing thing to me. Just like, I know it's not like a new science, but taking something that's supposed to like capture prey and instead using it to actually heal pain and whatever other things that venoms and poisons can do. It's just, this is such a cool science. I know. And here's the crazy thing. So this um, ziconotide, commonly known as Prialt, which you've probably seen commercials for, um, is a thousand times more potent than morphine as a painkiller. But more importantly than that, it doesn't cause addiction. It doesn't work on the opioid receptor. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't cause addiction like morphine and other opioids do. So when we talk about like the opioid crisis, people getting addicted to painkillers, this is an alternative painkiller that does not act on that system that gets you addicted. I've just, I've become so confident in the viewpoint that if we have any problem, just look for an animal that's done it better as a solution. Seriously. like we Every don't, single one. We don't understand how our nervous system works. I mean, we know a lot about it, but it's kind of like how we know a lot about ocean animals, but there's so much more that we don't know. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, but these animals that have evolved alongside us for millions, billions of years, um, they don't have knowledge, like, (laughs) like book knowledge about the nervous system, but through natural selection, they've evolved exactly what they need to target it very specifically. So we can learn a lot about our own nervous system by looking at these creatures that have evolved to attack it. (laughs) It's just, Um, it's so amazing. It's really interesting. Um... So there's been an increased interest since this medication came out um, in studying cone snail venom because obviously there's some really cool stuff we can derive from it. Um, So this study comes from a researcher uh, who specifically wanted to to study the venoms or the toxins, sorry, present in this Nirvana cabal. And she found something that you might not expect. And yes, it is in the title of the article, but I'm hoping you've forgotten by now. Insulin. <laughs> oh no, I forgot the title. That's, <laughs> that's <so amazing. laughs> Insulin. Yeah, I tried to lead you I'm away so, so I could No, I I I specifically tried to lead away from it so that I could surprise you with it again. Because <laughs> insulin is not a toxin. Insulin is something we need to metabolize sugar. Um, you're familiar with insulin, yes? Yes, if you don't make it, you get diabetes. Yeah, so yeah, diabetes um, can be caused by either an attack on your pancreatic system that makes it impossible for your body to produce insulin, or in type 2 diabetes, basically your body builds up an immunity to the effects of insulin. Um, 
And insulin is what, how you metabolize, how you break down glucose or blood sugar. Yeah. Um, So it's really important in humans for regulating our blood sugar, but also um, cognition. Like how when um, you haven't eaten in a long time and you start to get weird and cranky and you can't remember things, that's because (laughs) of insulin. Yeah, that's low insulin. Um, And high insulin can also cause really really bad problems, especially for diabetics. I mean, high, (laughs) high blood sugar. Sorry. (laughs) Switch those things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's not low insulin when you, uh, forget things. It's low blood sugar. So too much insulin, if you will. Um, overabundance, overabundance of insulin, um, lack of sugar. And if you don't have enough insulin, sugar can build up, uh, in your bloodstream, high blood sugar. And for diabetics, mm-hmm. that can lead to diabetic comas, blindness. It's why they have to get things amputated a lot. There's a lot of problems. Insulin is really important. Um, so mollusks, like cone snails, um, they have insulin in their bodies too. Um, they use it differently than vertebrates do. As we discussed, vertebrates, invertebrates, they do different stuff. Um, so... Mollusk insulins, which they find in inside of a cone snail, not in the venom chamber, but those are used to regulate, I don't know, a bunch of stuff. Um, but what's interesting about the insulin that they found in the venom bulb of cone snails using it for this um, Nirvana cabal is that it's a different type of insulin than they use internally. And they're creating it. Oh. Yeah. And they're synthesizing it in the same areas of their body where they create the venom. So they're not creating this insulin. They have two different insulins going on in their body. One for that, one for me, and one for you. <laughs> um, I'm glad that they're gracious predators, at least. Yes, um, not really though, because the insulin that's in the venom, <laughs> um, which in this article is dubbed Conins G1, is extremely similar to vertebrate insulin, like fish insulin. I'm guessing that's a bad thing. Yeah, it means that when they release this cabal into the water with this fish insulin, the fish basically start to go into hypoglycemic shock. That's why you see them twitching or slowing down their movements. It's because all of their blood sugar is being zapped out of their body. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, What the hell? Is is there any other animals that... Anything no. like this is okay. No, no, there is there is no other animal that has weaponized insulin. Actually, there is one. Uh, humans. Oh. oh. <laughs> um, there's a couple like killer nurse documentaries of nurses who kill people with insulin, but just them and oh, the God. cone snails. That's it. Nurses and the cone snails. Yeah, serial killer nurses and cone snails. That's it. <laughs> um, they're truly. I, it's, uh, snails are so cool. Mm-hmm. They yeah, look so, so unassuming, but inside they have little turkey basters that fill their harpoons with venom. Ugh. I but love, like, I love snails. How how did these snails evolve to create vertebrate insulin to target vertebrates when they are not vertebrates? Don't use insulin for the same things that vertebrates do, and don't create the same type of insulin in their bodies. Like I just and none of, none of those questions are answered. <laughs> um in this article but um what they did find is that the insulin that they created is as i said very similar similar to fish insulin but it also is different um in that it's much smaller essentially so like molluscan insulin um the chains are really big okay yeah so like just for example um like the so the insulin that is um, that is present in a sea hare, which is another type of mollusk, has a molecular mask uh, mass of um, nine thousand one hundred and forty six, whereas uh, a human human insulin has a molecular mass of five thousand eight hundred and eight, so about half. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So our insulins are about half the size of mollusk insulins, typically. These insulins that are created by the cone snail are even smaller than normal fish, normal vertebrate insulins. Um, And because of that, they can bond and act much, much faster. Because typically, if you were just to inject insulin 
into a living thing, it would take like minutes for that to start to take effect, usually between 15 and 90 minutes. But the venom, the venomized <laughs> insulin that coast sales create acts in seconds. So like, does our insulin have to be broken into smaller parts before it's used? Is that what is that what's happening here? No. And then there's just like already comes manufactured in that form? Now here is where I really tried. I did so much Googling with the jargon, with everything they were giving me with these molecular structures. And I could not figure out why smaller is faster. I couldn't. They know why. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, I don't. I'm sorry. I really tried to to muddle it out, but it was just too complex for me. No, it's but, like we talked about before. Chemistry is a massive blind spot for me as well. Yeah. If I were to try to explain it, so many chemists would get pissed off. <laughs> they <laughs> hey, probably already are. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it was, it's very interesting, definitely. And that, that fast acting element of this particular insulin, any guesses on how that could be useful for humans? Um, well, seeing as people who uh, either are born with or require diabetes need to take insulin, this could probably help to create a medication that would work a lot faster for them, right? Exactly. So humans who have diabetes, who go into hyperglycemic shock, who, you know, don't have enough insulin, their blood sugar gets really, really high, they can have those terrible effects like blindness or coma. The treatment for that is to give them insulin, but it takes, you know, a long time for that insulin to actually act on their bodies and fix the problem and reabsorb that sugar. Um, and in that time, a lot of damage can be done. So a medication that acts in seconds instead of, you know, over an hour, that could save a lot of feet, a lot of toes, a lot of eyes, a lot of people. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Coke Sales. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah, so that's a really cool new new door opened in biomimicry in pharmaceuticals. Um, and it is being picked up. Um, so there is a researcher, Helena Sefafi of the University of Copenhagen. She is right now um, working at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City um, uh, to, uh, to look more into these insulins and is working with a California-based biocup biotech company called Monologue, um, oh. which is leading the compound drugs development in the lead up to clinical trials. So there you go. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, uh, scientists, that you had to come to the U.S. from Denmark, which I've been assured is like way better, but thank you. Thank, thank, <laughs> thank you also for doing that, along with the snails. Also, thank you so much for doing it in the U.S. because we have the most expensive insulin. Oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, so it's a huge problem, actually, and I can't talk about insulin without bringing this up. Insulin is ridiculously expensive in the U.S., and I found a statistic. Um, in 2016, the average out-of-pocket costs, costs for a diabetic in the U.S. for insulin is $450 per month. Holy. Yeah. Just to have diabetes. <laughs> yeah, and that's just for the insulin, not for any any other elements of treatment. So that's more than half of the bill for to feed a family of four for a month. Um, and insulin is not expensive to produce. And the person who discovered how to synthesize it did not patent it and sold it for a dollar specifically because he believed that everyone should have access to insulin. Unfortunately, a bunch of pharmaceutical companies have since patented their own personal brands of insulin. And that competition is why it's so expensive. Um, but it's a huge problem for 425 million people in the world. Jesus. One out of 10 people in our country have diabetes, and two out of three people with diabetes will die from it. And that's because of the inability to manage. A lot of people will skip doses of insulin, et cetera, because they can't afford the amount that they actually need. And they mostly die from complications because of that. I'm clutching my brow. At I know. At I know. It's bad. Why? Yeah, so I, I can't give the pharmaceutical industry props for like creating these medications without also throwing some shade for 
the lack of accessibility to the people who need it. Um, I don't know anything about Monologue, <laughs> this California-based biotech company, so I don't want to throw shade on them specifically. But I do hope that if this new insulin product hits the market, that they actually won't hike up prices just because there's such a high demand. Yeah. Or maybe just make healthcare universal in the U.S. Oh, wait. Will that ever happen? (laughs) That would be cool. That would be cool for many reasons, including this one. Yeah. It would be. So this snail has done its part. Now you do yours. Vote for universal (laughs) healthcare. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like I did a really clunky job of covering this article, but I hope... It was a really dense topic, so I think you did a great job. Okay, cool, yeah. To summarize, cone snails have crazy, crazy venoms, mostly neurotoxins, but this cone snail that hunts using a big net made out of its foot injects a toxic (laughs) chemical, array of chemicals into the water to slow down the fish before it catches them. Researchers studied this array of toxins to find out what was in there, and they found insulin that works better than our insulin on people with diabetes. That's my summary. (laughs) (laughs) I read a post that made me laugh way too hard one time that was literally just no punctuation. What are snails even trying to do? They're trying to do, I would just say, everything that you just quoted. Yeah. That would be enough. They're just trying to do their best. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. With their foot that can net you, and then they put you into hyperglycemic. Jesus, that's so amazing. It's crazy. Okay, wow. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You are very welcome. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Um, cool. Uh, would you like to hear mine? I absolutely would. And here's where we'd put the commercial break if we had sponsors. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, SciHub. Looking at you, SciHub. <laughs> If you're listening, I use you all the time. Um, Cool. So, uh, oh, I also uh, use Sci Hub to look into this paper, I think. Um, Dearest Karen, what what have you brought for me today? (laughs) So my paper is titled, this one also had a decent title, not going to lie. Five Million Years in the Darkness, A New Troglomorphic Species of Cryptops, uh, Class Chylopoda Order Scalopendromorpha, from Movila Cave, Romania. So long, long title. They really had me in the first half. They kind of dropped off in the second. Yeah, just the first. What, what were the first three words again? Five million years in the darkness. In the darkness. Okay, so five million years in the darkness. That should have been the title. Mm-hmm. Yes. Stop it there. Um, <laughs> now, if I had to rename the paper, I would call it Long Live the King of the Poisonous Acid Cave. Hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah, so let's figure out what... Oh, real quick, real quick, Mm -hmm. because I love that, but I forgot to retitle mine. Oh, yeah. Can I retitle it? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um... (laughs) 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 Um, venomous snails trying to kill fish are better at saving human lives than American pharmaceutical companies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh just to rag them love it yeah <laughs> all right continue okay. uh, let's hear yeah, about it screw you uh pharmaceutical industry yes except except that one guy he's cool um so um in order to truly comprehend how batshit insane this cave environment is um i have to i read two papers for this uh thing uh so we're first going to talk about a paper published in 2018 called dobroja movila cave uh, this was published in Cave and Karst Systems of the World. Um, this also may be one of the few times where I think the habitat might be cooler than the actual animals that, that are living in it. Oh. So, indeed. Um, so Dobroja is located in southeast Romania. And southern Dobroja basically sits on a gigantic slab of limestone uh, covered by loess, which is this loose yellow-gray clay that's blown together in, in heaps by wind. This is apparently uh, a great spot to build a power plant. The only issue was that Dobroja also has a lot of what are called karstic features. These are things like cliffs and valleys. And karstic features on the surface are often associated with underground things like caves and potential sinkholes. Um, No one had actually looked under Dobroja or where this plant was going to be built, which is a city that I forgot to write the name of, so we're going to skip it. Um, uh, So to prevent... So to prevent the potential sinkhole collapse of any future buildings, um, the surface, uh, the subsurface of the chosen spot would have to be investigated. And here is where it starts to sound like the plot of a sci-fi movie. 
So, uh, Madison, do you know the term uh, for a scientist who studies caves? Oh, I don't. It comes from, I would assume that Spelunker was made first, but it's a speleologist. Speleologist. Oh, mm-hmm. that's fun. A speleologist. That sounds like you study... It sounds like a speleologist would like study spells, but like not be that serious about it. So kind of silly. Speleologist. <laughs> I like it. We'll, uh, we'll use that from now on. Um, so <laughs> several artificial... Uh, oh, Sorry, in 1986, uh, several artificial shafts, by the way, this was the same year that Chernobyl blew up, um, several artificial shafts were dug near the shore of the Black Sea, which was near this town, uh, through which a speleologist entered to investigate. (laughs) At the bottom of one shaft, 18 meters down, uh, he discovered a cave that had been completely sealed off from the surface until the digging opened it up. So this cave had no natural openings. Wait, 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 wait. How long had it been down there? Like, how long had it been sealed off? Is it like a time capsule? At least. So remember the study five million years in the darkness? Uh-huh. Oh my god. So five it is like million years. It's like a five million year old time capsule. Yes. Mostly, but we'll get into that in a sec. Yeah, and like um, I, you said clay, so I, I assume like the, the substrate around it is sort of porous. So like some things can mm-hmm. get in and out, but not us. Is that wrong? Continue. I'm so sorry. Yes and yes and no. No, no, no. That's that's a good line of thought. It was probably like this when the cave was still less concealed because as we're about to see this cave is teeming with life but after it got sealed up one has to assume that life was just evolving there in complete isolation but like oh i have so many questions that you might answer so i'm gonna hold them i'm gonna put them in my pocket for now keep going (laughs) i I have a feeling i'm about to answer one that i think you have um but yes so this cave was named uh in romanian peshtera mobile I listened to a Romanian woman say that like 50 times to get it right, uh, which is Romanian for Cave of Hillux. A hillock is a small hill. Don't know why they named it something that boring, but yeah. Um, so Movila Cave is a 200 meter long horizontal maze made up of two levels. Um, the upper level is mostly dry with about one to two meter wide rounded passages to move through. The lower level, however, uh, has passages that are slightly smaller and are actually flooded by thermal mineral groundwater, meaning uh, any water that's uh, 20 degrees Celsius or 68 Fahrenheit or above, and loaded with minerals. Uh, in this case, hydrogen sulfide, methane, and ammonia. AKA, I don't want to even imagine what that must smell like. Ooh, yeah, we've got sulfur, we've got ammonia, we've got a nice blend of rotten eggs and bleach, is what I'm It just smells like an, a bleachy acidic fart, is basically Ooh. what I have to imagine. Um, yeah, so... Um, <laughs> The heated groundwater gives uh, the entire cave a relative humidity of 100%. And, what a uh, neighborhood. Balmy, indeed. And the temperature is actually pretty good uh, because the water is heated because it's attached to something thermal. Uh, the temperature of the water, sorry, the air temperature of the cave is about 70 Fahrenheit or 21 Celsius. Um, but to human standards, the temperature is probably the only tolerable thing about this cave. So while air in the upper level contains around 20% oxygen, um, our surface air has around 21% oxygen, mm-hmm. it can drop to as low as 7% uh, in certain pockets in the flooded lower level. Ooh, Seven. buddy. So like, if you were to breathe in air uh, that had 7% oxygen, but the CO2 wasn't elevated at all, you would just sort of start to pass out, but not understand why. Yeah, I would. <laughs> <laughs> and the water is is awful too um the water is completely devoid of dissolved oxygen past one millimeter so nothing can breathe the water past one millimeter it's just non-existent okay so um, i'm gonna pause you here for a moment because mm-hmm. you're telling me there's like no oxygen it smells like a bleach fart it's humid as <laughs> hell it's a terrible place that it seems like nothing could live. And yet you told me about five minutes ago that it's teeming with life. So I'm wondering what kind of life? Ooh, we're, we're so close. I have a couple more details. Okay, 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 okay. So um, water droplets on the walls, because it's 100% humidity, so there's going to be water droplets. Um, they give a pH of 3.5 to 4, which Ooh. is about as acidic. It's between the acidity of vinegar and a tomato. Yeah. Water droplets. Yeah. Well, yum, um, but wow. <laughs> um, this is likely because of highly elevated levels of hydrogen sulfide in the groundwater. Makes sense, right? Yes. Uh, but here's the kicker. Again, this 
Previously sealed off, Acidic Hellcave is also <laughs> teeming with life. And I mean teeming. Um, so just uh, as a little prelude, um, caves are not supposed to have a lot of life inside of them. High biomass or a lot of organisms able to exist together inside a cave, besides like transient visitors like bats, is pretty out of mm-hmm. the norm. Yeah. Um, with little to no sunlight to power photosynthesis, um, cave food webs tend to rely on outside organic sources as their base, like poop, uh, dead things, or other matter that's slowly washed in by water. Mm-hmm. Those often fickle food sources tend to create systems with pretty low biomass overall. But, and this is getting back to a question you had earlier of like nothing being able to uh, drip down, the large clay deposits above Movila actively prevent that that sort of thing. And you know they why they know that? It. Indeed. And you know why they know that? Why? So the Chernobyl disaster, right? Um, it yeah. wasn't limited to this too, to the Soviet Union. Uh, toxic no. clouds of radioactive matter went very much further than that. Oh yeah, so we can they're... use it to date a lot of things. Exactly. Uh, but we can't date anything inside Movila Cave itself. While the clay is, is slightly irradiated, Movila Cave is not. Cool. So that's pretty much a surefire sign that like we've been studying this cave for a couple decades at this point and no one's found that radioactive materials made it inside. Yeah, I was going to say, radioactive material is one of those things that can get through almost anything. So the fact that it's not present means nothing was getting down there. Nothing. Indeed. So if nothing's getting down there, then (laughs) it's a great summary. Um, So if that's your summary, Madison, then what's going on here? Why is Movila Cave so unlike other caves? Okay, so I do have an idea, but... I'm just going to throw it out there. So, okay. This is a place where it'd be really hard for most things to survive. Most caves are really hard for things to survive. And that's why like crazy extremophiles evolve there. Like salamanders mm-hmm. with external gills and no eyes that live for a thousand years, etc. Um, <laughs> now, the lack of oxygen and the lack of interaction from the outside is what's really strange to me because I mean if radioactive material isn't getting in then poop isn't getting in or dead things so I'm wondering is there some sort of hydrothermal vent situation going out here around here do we have like an ecosystem based on sulfur eating bacteria yep like like in hydrothermal vents like in the deep sea yeah that's exactly it that's what's happening oh my god (laughs) that is what's happening so yeah I'm, I'm so glad that you hit on it because like we were talking about, the one thing that can get inside this cave is that thermal mineral groundwater, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Inside the thermal mineral groundwater, there have had to have been uh, certain types of microbes called chemoautotrophs, which are, like you just said, the very same type you find underwater in hydrothermal vents. The only life form that is not based on photosynthesis. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean by that, right? Like the only life... The only, the only thing that can survive without the sun being a part of it at some point. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so instead, um, yes, instead of being powered, <laughs> I got you, So um, yes, instead of being powered by sunlight, uh, chemoautotrophs get their energy from breaking down chemicals like hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, and methane, which are oh. the ones that are making Movila Cave probably smell so bad. And they're all really abundant in in, in Movila Cave's water. And so are the microbes. Uh, They live in the water. They cover it in microbial mats or biofilms. Um, A biofilm is when a lot of microbes get together and just make this matrix of sugars and they live in it. And it makes them really sturdy to environmental conditions. But what else is attracted to sugars? Anything that eats. Um, So there's biofilms everywhere. And because there's such a high dense community of these chemoautotrophs, there's also an entire food web above them. Um, Yeah, where you have glucose... you can have life. Exactly. So yeah. not only is this the very first chemoautotrophic um, ecosystem or entirely chemoautotrophic ever discovered on land, there's so much living there. Um, there's just, there's so much. There's so many animals that have made it their home. Um, and let's let's uh, let's talk about a few of them. So in yes, the water, please. because there are things that are able to live in the water. What's up? I said, yes, please. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want... Give me the animals. Okay. <laughs> so in the water, tiny crustaceans and roundworms, uh, some people might know them as nematodes, uh, feast mm-hmm. on the biofilms. While still other crustaceans, leeches, and flatworms probably feast on all of the above. 
Uh, water scorpions, which are not scorpions, they're actually insects, uh, lie in wait in the banks uh, for snails and other goodies. Now on land, there's also biofilms everywhere, and they are feasted on by terrestrial isopods. Those are pill bugs, or early bones. Oh, yeah! Um, indeed, there's springtails, which are pretty much adjacent to insects, and there's a lot of millipedes. And there's also things that eat those things. Um, those animals, in turn, are preyed on by spiders, pseudoscorpions, mites, centipedes, and predatory beetles. Okay, questions. Pause, pause, pause. Yes. Are these all new species? Or are these um, species of spiders that we've seen other places? Why did I not write this down? Um, Cause that's I did write this I'm, down, but it's... That's, that's what I'm most curious about, because... Oh, I did. Um, species of spiders and pseudoscorpions that were extant five million years ago? Yes and no. Um, at this point, at least 34 of those 51 species we found in there are all endemic. They haven't been found anywhere else. Okay, cool. So like it's, um, you know, they got cut off like a little, in, uh, what's it called? Evolutionary bottleneck and did their own thing. Exactly. And okay. as we're about to find out, uh, that number might actually be 35. Oh, all right. Indeed. So, <laughs> so um, Movila's apex predator in, in the water, it might actually be a leech. Uh, they weren't really sure, which is, that's really cool. But on land, it might be well, they, they determined it was because this was the biggest thing in the cave. The biggest thing in the cave was a one to two inch long uh, cave centipede called Cryptops Anomalans. Oh, and, no. they, and they named Anomalans the apex predator. Um, or is it? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Well, I, question I'm mark. already not on its side because it's a centipede. <laughs> <laughs> They're my least Let's... favorite bug. <laughs> You know, for, for for the sake of discovery, let's put our differences, uh, mainly legs on the side, to the side. Oh, fine. Definitely put the legs on the side. I don't want them anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, ooh, one more fun fact before we move on. Um, okay. so, so so the sulfide eating microbes, um, the, the ones that eat the sulfur, they're the dominant ones inside the cave. And the byproduct or a byproduct of their metabolism is actual sulfuric acid. Hmm. Um there's some pretty strong evidence in the form of a sulfate mineral called gypsum um, and what's called condensation erosion that the newer sections of Movila Cave were formed by the long-term dissolving of limestone by micro-generated sulfuric acid. Hell yeah. They made the newer parts of the cave. They've been they putting on that addition for five million years. Uh-huh. And made it unlivable to anything on the surface. So thanks for that, guys. Very much like humans. Indeed. <laughs> Um, so yes, back back to those centipedes you love so much. Oh, so seeing <laughs> so seeing as we still know very little in general about Movila Cave's inverts, uh, because you know we haven't really been looking at it for that long, considering how long it's been around, um, a team of scientists got to thinking about the identity of this apex predator centipede. The genus Cryptops is actually very common in caves around the globe, and Cryptops anomalans, which is the one that they assumed it to be, is widespread in. in um, Romania. So it would make sense that they thought that that was what it was. Um, and this anomaland species is well adapted to cave life, but it's not a troglomorph. Um, a species that's troglomorphic is adapted to living in the constant, constant, complete darkness of cave environments and, and other features. Yes. So like a troglobite is an animal <laughs> that spends time in caves, but a troglomorph spends all of its time in a cave. Troglobite, bat. Troglomorph, that salamander I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so seeing as Movila Cave has been sealed off for at least 5 million years, and it was already known at this point, like we talked about, at least 34 endemic species of inverts exist in the cave out of 51, the authors hypothesized that these sealed away centipedes actually did go through troglomorphism and became a new species altogether. Hey! So, indeed, because why wouldn't it happen? Uh, so to perform their analysis, the team uh, acquired fresh specimens um, of the cave centipedes, which were definitely cryptops, but maybe a different species. And then they hand-gathered at the surface level uh, centipedes that they knew were cryptops anomalans. They also took DNA uh, samples and used additional info from, other, from like 29 other specimens in the same genus to construct a genetic family tree. Um, that was a lot of info, but we're going to talk about it again later. Well, yeah, so, I mean, that's how that's how they're doing it now. I mean, they used to organize animals based on shared characteristics, but now that we have, <laughs> now that we can actually look at DNA and sequence it, we can make genetic family trees and the weird stuff. That's it. Okay, continue. Indeed. 
So we found out that uh, the closest living relatives to whales are uh, hippos, which is amazing. Yes, exactly. Indeed. Okay, and wait, wait, wait. He's cool. Just real quick, as long mm-hmm. as we are already on a tangent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of the whales thing, one of my friends texted me horrified the other day because someone had told her that whales descended from hooved wolves. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who said that? <laughs> that is not what they are. <laughs> it kind well. Okay, yes, it's... they're pack animals. Pacacetus. Yes, does have hooves, does kind of look like a wolf. But it is not related to wolves. It is not. No, not at all. Exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think they were trying to like, oh, a picture. they were doing the exact same thing that you just mentioned. They were ascribing physical characteristics and that's what it was. It looks like yeah. a wolf, so it is a wolf. Oh, you're right. Genetic evidence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything comes together. Um, anyway. So back to your centipedes. Back to the um, Anatomy-wise... <laughs> Back to the troglomorphs. So anatomy-wise, the centipedes were really quite similar, and they overlapped in size as well. Uh, the cave centipedes were a bit bigger, um, and there were, however, consistent di- con- blah, 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 consistent differences upon closer inspection. Um, the Movila centipedes had longer legs uh, and lo- longer antennae, and a less hairy body and less hairy fangs. Uh, they did have more teeth, um, which are just sort of like projections like you see on a crab, um, on their tibia, uh, or their their equivalent, and more than 200 extra coxopores. Um, in, in a centipede, a coxopore is an opening that releases excess water, as well as pheromones. Um, and that makes sense because in an environment that's 100% humidity, you're going to want to get away, uh, you're going to want to get rid of the water pretty much constantly. Um, yeah. But yeah, and they also had larger, yeah, and they also had larger spiracles, which pull in oxygen. All of these things are indicative of a descendants into troglomorphy. Um, so yeah. these anatomical differences were only validified, validified, are we just not saying complete words anymore, uh, validated by the <laughs> DNA evidence, which... <laughs> well, validated, which found, verified, uh, I mean, I see. <laughs> clumsy portmanteau on my part. Um, so they did find Cryptops anomalans in this new species to be more related to each other than the other specimens they used, which makes sense. The anomalans got sealed away and made this new species. But more importantly... Uh, the Movila centipedes were also distinct enough on their own to be considered a new species. They used two genes that are very informative for this, and for one gene, there was between a 9.2 and 12.2% difference, and for the other one, there was about a 6.6 to 8.6. And I don't know what those numbers mean, but they said that they were enough to call them a new species, so we're just going to go with that. Um, See, there so you they go. Gave this Some centipede... people probably said it was. <laughs> I was going to say, sometimes this was like, this is a new species. And then 12 other scientists were probably like, no, it's not. And that one was like, yes, it is. And I'll prove <laughs> it by pointing at these numbers. So it all ties together. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Um, the icing on the cake is this centipede was given such a cool name. Um, it was given the name Cryptops speleorex. Uh, Cryptops is already pretty cool on its own. It means hidden face mm. because their family is pretty much blind. And speleorex means king of the cave. Ooh, king of so the there cave. You have it. A hidden face. An acid cave. Indeed. Hidden faced king of the cave. But yeah, um, this is an acid formed cave whose lower levels are toxic to surface dwellers, and an evolution in five million year isolation, giving birth to a two inch long blind centipede that rules over all of the inverts and everything else in that cave. As long as it stays in the Just- cave. <laughs> <laughs> Is that really what you took from this? <laughs> I, um, it was hidden in the darkness for five million years. We took it out. <laughs> we we tossed it around in some genetic olive oil. We figured out what was going on, and now we're going to put it back. We're going to seal it up, and we're going to let it do its thing, right? I won't tell you that the cave is definitely not sealed up. I won't uh, People never live. <laughs> <laughs> if you find nope, an ape- um, It really does sound like... Uh, no, 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 okay. uh, sorry. I was just—if you find a new apex predator that has all of the t- all the teeth and the hairy fangs and so many legs and it's eaten all of the sulfurous fart bugs, you you want to put that back. <laughs> I thought you were gonna do like if you might be a redneck for if you find a centipede that has less <laughs> hair and fangs than his cousins, you might be a biospeleologist. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was well done. <laughs> No, I'm just, I'm just, 
for some reason I'm being salty about this centipede, but I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy to know about it. I'm happy it's doing its thing down there. It is really, really cool to see that speciation, that sort of forced speciation. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, that's just really interesting to me. I love thinking about evolutionary biology and just looking at those changes that that creature went through over the generations <laughs> to become a troglomorph, to like be adapted to that insanely unlivable environment. It's just, you know, life finds a way. It always does. And that's just so amazing to me. Indeed. And yeah. life imitates art because I would be more than certain that there's been like a crappy sci-fi B movie that follows this exact plot line. I don't think there is. Yeah, killer blind centipedes from Romania. Oh, okay. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I I thought you meant like a scientist discovering a cave that's super old and finding all of this new life and being like, "Wow, cool." No. Like that's <laughs> They would never make a sci-fi movie actually that scientific. Are you crazy? <laughs> I was like, uh, that didn't happen. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, they would turn it into some sort of like a Sharknado type thing. It would be like Romanian blind cave centipede hurricane. <laughs> That's one. <laughs> centipede hurricane. New sci-fi movie of 2020. Oh, God. That'd be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome for that mental image. Um, yeah. Cool. Uh, that was whatever i think this is episode five but that was uh toxins we'll probably do the subject again because it is Heck such a yeah. cool thing but uh yeah uh thank you for joining us uh jared is signing off madison what say you uh i also say i'm signing off thank you so much listeners for letting us talk to you about toxins in caves and in snails and in our bodies and our hearts and our minds um super look forward to you uh for talking to you for episode six which will be on climate change solutions am i wrong you are correct you are correct because there are solutions Wanna... out there despite what you might have been hearing yeah so yeah next next week is this one was a little creepy next week's gonna be a little more uplifting hopefully <laughs> um <laughs> i was and, actually uh, thinking yeah. of taking march or may and just making it like messed up march because there are so many articles like og articles back in the day of just messed up stuff being done Ooh, we're going to need a lot more than March. I mean, sure, messed up March. Like, what kind of messed up? Are we talking like, are we going to try to make our visitors throw up or? <laughs> Not visitors. with like Where that do I work? in mind. <laughs> 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 Granted, I was, um, my threshold for like gross is probably really, really up there. But uh, we'll probably have to refine this idea so we don't like scare people away forever. Um, okay. All yeah, right, no, I, more I, on I that like later. <laughs> More on that later. All right, signing off. This is Madison. <laughs> this is Jared. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>